Amen. I invite you to open up your Bibles to the book of Ruth. We're going to be in chapter 3. The longer I live, the more I have observed within my own life as well as in society or other lives around me that there's a certain disconnect between a person's desire for a result and their willingness to travel the difficult road necessary in order to receive it. There seems to be a divide between how much we claim we want something and what we are willing to do in order to get it. Now, there's examples of this everywhere, but let me just offer three examples from my own personal life. One of the things I would love to be better at is better at playing piano. I would love to be able to play like young Billy Mulligan. I'd love to have the dexterity to have my fingers fly across the ivories and just do all the things that he does. I would like to be able to read classical music the way he reads music. I've wanted that since I was a kid. I still want that. I have a strong desire until it comes time to submit myself to the process that is required. I want to play like that but I don't want to submit myself to practicing every single day for hours and hours. I have the desire, but I'm not willing to take the difficult road. Another example of this is is found in just my own children. So I have four children, nine all the way down to one, and all of them at one phase or another of their lives, usually when they're younger, they're trying to exert that independence that they have, and, and there comes a phase where they want something that they are unable to do on their own. And yet, what are they going to struggle for me to do? To help them. No, 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 I do it myself. That's the phase that my youngest is in right now. No, no, I I do it. You can't do it. And I'm not talking about the good thing of watching children learn how to become self-sufficient and learn how to do things. I'm talking about this element where, no, this is out of your reach. You can't do this. But their problem is they're not willing to humble themselves to what is necessary for them to get what they want. They're not willing to humbly come to me and ask, will you help me? They have the desire, but they're not willing to take the difficult road. Another example for me would be, uh, I grew up in Brazil and in my backyard, uh, we had an orchard of all of these different fruit trees. I think we had like 15 different kinds, maybe more. And it was wonderful to be able to go out and just pick and savor the, the results and the harvest that was coming. And as a kid, I always thought, man, someday I'm going to have, when I have my own house, I'm going to have an orchard. I'm going to have all of these fruit trees so I can go out and just pick and savor. I had that desire. Back in 2017, so six years ago, my wife and I bought our house. And in those six years, do you know how many fruit trees I've planted? One. And I didn't even buy that fruit tree. My mother-in-law gave the fruit tree to me. And, And this makes absolutely no sense. But do you know why I haven't planted more trees? Because in, when it comes time to it, sometimes I just forget and, I, and then it's too late to plant. But often I'm like, man, 
if I plant that tree now, it'll be so long before it actually produces anything, I'll do it later. I understand that makes no logical sense. <laughs> because if I had planted them six years ago, I would have that fruit now. And yeah, I'm like, no, I, I, I'm not going to do it now. What I lack is patience. What I lack is the difficult road of waiting. I'm going to plant now because I have that desire, but I'm going to have to wait until I see the result, results. Like I said, we could list many more examples that demonstrate the disconnect between what we desire and what we'll do. But the fact is that what we struggle with often is not how much we want something. What we struggle with is not the fact that we do or don't desire it. What we struggle with is will we or won't we take the difficult road that is necessary? Over the last few weeks, we've been studying the book of Ruth. And within the book of Ruth, we are ramping up to a wonderful, magnificent ending. The book is this constant crescendo until we reach the grand finale. And we love that. We love this, this bitter hardship that we start the book and knowing that it's going to produce a sweeter harvest. We love seeing what God's going to do. We want to see the difficult circumstances reversed. We want to see Ruth redeemed. And most of you know the story. You know where the story is going to end. You know there's a happy ending. You know that in the end there is redemption. That's where we want to get to. Let's see this happy ending. But there's a danger that in our haste to arrive at the happy ever after, we skip the process that led to that result. What happens in the rest of the story? I'm just going to confess to you guys, when I was studying the book of Ruth, when it came to chapter 3, chapter 3 was the one that I was most like, uh, I don't know. Not exactly sure what I'm going to preach out of this. I mean, chapter one was easy. We have to return to the Lord. That preaches. Chapter two, we need to follow his will if we want to seek his refuge. Okay, that's easy. Chapter three, a weird proposal. Uh, I'm, I'm not exactly sure what I'm going to take away from this. What can we glean from a, frankly, a strange account of where a foreign woman goes and lies at someone's feet and that's the way that she's seeking to be redeemed? I mean, is there any connection to our day and age right now? Why can't we just jump to the end where we see the results? Let's get to the reward. But as is often the case, I am often most blessed by the passages where I initially was least impacted by them. That process of actually going through and saying, what does God have for us is often one of the most blessed things I get the privilege of doing. You see, within this chapter, when we take a deeper look at what is happening, we uncover a pattern that is paramount to the process of ultimately receiving our reward. There are clues here. There are steps here that we're going to see that Ruth's going to take that reveal to us a greater truth. Here's the main takeaway for this morning. Receive the Redeemer the Lord has provided. We must receive 
the Redeemer, the Lord, has provided. There's going to be two parts of this big idea that we're going to emphasize within our story. On one hand, I want us to observe the process Ruth follows in receiving her Redeemer. What does Ruth do? She has a desire to be redeemed, but what does she actually do? We're going to observe that. On the other hand, we want to observe the character of Boaz. What can we see about the Redeemer the Lord has provided? What do we see that is true about the man God chooses to bless the weak, the lonely, and the lost? Just a quick note for you, uh, for those of you who like to follow along with the handout, um, at the top of the page, you're going to see that it talks about Ruth and we're going to see how she receives. And then lower down, it talks about Boaz and what kind of redeemer he is. On the handout, I have those separated because that makes sense to be able to see them both at the same time. As I'm preaching though, I'm not going to go just through Ruth, go all the way back and then through Boaz. So if you're one of those people that gets very, um, is very concerned about making sure you write your notes at the right spot, know that I'm going to be going at the top and at the bottom at the same time. We'll just kind of go back and forth. You'll be able to understand what we're doing. It's no problem. If you're one of those people that tries to gauge how much is left in the message by how much is in the handout, sorry. So let's continue. Let's look now and see. What begins this passage with Naomi's proposition to Ruth? Let's look at verses 1 and 2. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? What is Naomi asking Ruth? There's these two phrases here that seem disconnected. She first says, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? And then she says, is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? I mean, if if you're Ruth, you're like, yes, I would love rest. Yes, Boaz is a relative? I I mean, how do those two ideas connect together there? To understand the significance of what Naomi is asking, we need to remember what Naomi has already said in the past. Naomi's first significant statement was all the way back when they were in Moab. At that time, Naomi was full of bitterness. She had experienced dark and deep sorrows. And she doesn't want that for her daughters. She tells them to leave. And what does she want for them? What does she say for them in Ruth chapter 1 verse 9? The Lord grant that you may find rest. Where will they find rest? Each in the house of your husband. Now she's not talking about their dead husbands. Because if she was talking about her dead husbands, whose house would be the house of their husbands? Naomi's house. Right? That, that they were her kids. So she's not saying, may each of you find rest in the house of your husband, or otherwise knowing, known as my house. No, she's saying, go back. Find new rest in a new husband. 
For Naomi, we see that there is a connection that on this earth, this circumstance, there's an idea of rest for her that is connected to the house of the husband. But then there's another significant statement that that Naomi says. And it's in chapter 2, verse 20, where Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. In our day and age, there's going to be a disconnect between shall I find you a husband, because that's what Naomi's saying, shall I find rest for you? She's asking, should I look for a husband for you? There's going to be a disconnect between that and then, hey, look, here's one of our relatives. For us, that's a strange connection. I'm like, I'm sorry, what? Wait, what are we we doing? We're connecting, remarrying with, with one of our relatives. But we need to understand that this is part of God's plan that God had put this together, that he had orchestrated something for the good of his people. Deuteronomy 25, five through six says this, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead, that his name may not be blotted out from Israel. It's likely that this seems a little strange to you. So so let me just add some context. Your name and lineage mattered in Israel. there, There were many ways, but I just want to highlight one of those. When Israel conquered the promised land, when they entered the promised land, the land was divided among all the tribes, among all of the families. And that land was meant to be an eternal gift to them, that that would be their eternal possession. And it would pass on from child to child. We don't work that way here. Sometimes you can inherit land from from a relative and you can have a land that has been in your family for generations. But what happens if someone, if you sell it, you come on hard times and you give it away? Well, that's it. It's out of your family. That's not what would happen in Israel. You were allowed to sell your land if you came on hard times, but... God had already planned that should it, within a certain amount of time, at the year of Jubilee, that land would come back to your family so that it would eternally be part of your lineage. It wouldn't forever be taken away from you. One of the most tragic ideas for them was for their name to be erased for them to no longer be counted as part of the people that death had erased their name. And so what would happen is if a woman who was married, her husband died and there is no one to continue that line rather than marrying someone else that was outside of the line and starting a new lineage, they would marry within the family so that that line, that blood could continue. And that is what we're talking about here, that Naomi has, has, her husband has died and she has no one to continue the line. Can you imagine for Naomi what it was like to leave Moab and send her daughters back and think, that's it. My story has been erased. I have been blotted out. The Lord has dealt bitterly with me. 
There's no more hope. Even if I should have a husband tonight to have another son, there's no hope to continue this line. Go back, my daughters. But now, because she has seen the work that God is doing through the faithfulness of Ruth, through the faithfulness of Boaz, she's changed her mind. Now she is here and she's saying, wait, God does have a plan. God does have a purpose. There is something more going on. Before we move on, I just want us to notice the progression we are seeing in Naomi. Naomi is now finally, willingly joining the story God has been telling the whole time. All the way back in chapter 1, God was already writing this. He was already orchestrating the details. And yet when we come to chapter 2, we see that Ruth is striving to follow God's will. Boaz is striving to follow God's will. But where's Naomi? And we come here now and we see that Naomi is finally being part of this. She's joining in on the story and she's saying, shall I not find you rest? Before she said, may you find rest. It's going to be on you. Now she's saying, I want to be part of the story. I just want to offer a, a comfort and challenge for us. The comfort is that even when we are in the depths of despair and bitterness, God is still in control. God remains in control even when our life is out of control. There will be seasons where we are not going to be striving to follow God's will. There are going to be seasons where we are sitting in darkness and in despair, and this is the comfort for us. God remains in control. He's still working. But there's a challenge as well. The challenge is that it is far better to be an active participant in the story that God is writing, to strive to follow his will, than, rather than being a passive participant, whether because of apathy or bitterness. Look at the transformation that is happening in Naomi. Now here's a question though. Why Boaz? Why is Naomi highlighting Boaz? Boaz, our relative. Now, part of that is because he's a relative. He's qualified to fulfill what Deuteronomy 25 said. He is someone that they can rely on because Deuteronomy 25 says, do not let her marry a stranger. And so at face value, we would say, oh, well, because Boaz is qualified, so that's enough. But there's something more. Look at what she also says. Is not Boaz our relative. Okay, he's qualified with whose young women you were. Ruth knows Boaz's character. She remembers the care that he provided for Ruth as Ruth joined the young women and Boaz went far beyond what was necessary. The, the, the requirement of the law was to let Ruth come after everyone else and pick up the scraps. But Boaz says, no, Come, have this wine, eat of this food, join and glean with my young women. He tells the young men, here, let take out some from the sheaves, give her extra. Let her drink of the water that you are drawing. No one touch her. 
Ruth and, and, and Naomi know that within Boaz, they have found both a provider and a protector. What this is pointing to is that they have come to realize what the narrator told us at the beginning of chapter 2. Boaz is a worthy man. What kind of redeemer has the Lord provided? A worthy redeemer. But now let's look and, and, and see a little bit more of the instructions that, that Naomi is going to give to Ruth. Look at verse, uh, continue in verse 2. See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Again, a lot here is very different from our culture. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to venture a guess that none of you proposed that way. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just wild guess. I mean, if one of you did, please come and talk to me after. I want to hear this story. But, but what's going on here? For, for we need to understand that, that the setting that's happening here. First, this winnowing barley at the threshing floor. Um, when they harvested barley... First, they're going to go and they're going to cut down the entire plant. So it's going to have the stalk and then the seed is up at the top. Like think of those classic pictures of wheat that we see. Very similar, okay? So they have this barley that they get, but most of that plant is inedible. The part that you want is the seed at the top. So then what you would do is you would take it to the threshing floor. You would stamp on it. You would beat it. You would have this flat surface in order to separate the seed from the chaff, to separate the seed from the parts that are inedible. Usually this was going to be on the side of a hill so that then what they would do, because now you have this, all of this mixture of seeds that are edible and the chaff. And so what they would do is they would pick it up. They would throw it into the air while the breeze was blowing, generally in the evening. And that breeze would throw away the chaff and what would fall back was the seed. And so they're doing this. And, and what Ruth, Naomi's going to tell her is go to this place so that you can do what? Observe where he's going. But look at all the steps that, she, that Naomi lists. Many of these steps fall in line with how brides would, be, would prepare themselves. In Ezekiel 16, there's a parable in which we have the Lord and his unfaithful bride, Israel. And yet what it describes in there, many of these elements that we see in our passage, that, that the bride would wash herself. She would anoint herself. She would put on the new robe. There's even the connection of, of being covered with the corner of the garment that we're going to see later in our passage. What Ruth is, what Naomi is telling Ruth to do is propose. Go down and ask Boaz to redeem you through marriage. There's possibly even some connections. We could spend a lot of time trying to understand. Um, there's possibly a connection where putting on the robe would be in an element of removing her mourning clothes that she's been wearing and now wearing a different set of clothes. 
We're not sure all of the details. We're not sure all of the connections between what it meant to lie at someone's feet. And some of these realistically might not be what was traditional then because we need to remember that Ruth and Naomi are abnormal. Normally, you would have a husband that was being doing all of this negotiating. Naomi doesn't have that. Ruth is a foreigner. And so Naomi's trying to understand and do this in a way that still protects her daughter. But how's Ruth going to respond to the counsel that her mother-in-law is giving her? I want us to stop and consider and try to put ourselves in Ruth's place without already knowing the end of the story. We, we know what's coming, but, but Ruth didn't. Yeah, Boaz has proven that he will follow the law in providing for widows and let them glean in the fields. And there is a law for kinsmen redeemers to marry widows. But do you think Ruth is concerned? Hey, does that apply to me, a foreigner, a Moabite? Yes, Boaz has been kind. He's protected me. He's given me from his fields, but is he willing to protect me and be a refuge as my husband? Ruth has gone and done the hard thing of going out into the fields during the day, knowing that there was a danger that she should be, could be assaulted, that both Boaz and Naomi in the previous passage addressed that concern, that there was a real danger for her. That was during the day. And there were other women around. Now she's going out at night. There will be no women out there. She's going to have to walk out of the city alone. Yes, Boaz has demonstrated he is a worthy man and a man of honor, but how will he respond to Ruth initiating a request of marriage? Do you think that this process was easy for Ruth to do? That this was a road where Naomi said, hey, shall I not find rest? Yes, I desire rest. Great, I have an easy road for you to take. Just stay here, I'll take care of everything. Now there's a difficult road for Ruth here. Ruth is going to go out and she's going to face real danger. Top of that, there is an element where at the end, and, and Naomi says, and he will tell you what to do. There's not even a promise or guarantee that this process will lead to the results she wants. She's going to have to go there and be submissive. In light of how hard this process is, in light of how scared Ruth was and I'm sure how nervous she was, how does she respond? Well, let's see. And she replied, all that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law commanded her. The road that Naomi described in order to attain the result, she did, uh, result desired was difficult, but Ruth submitted herself to that process. Ruth responded to Naomi's counsel with submission. All that you say, I will do. And she did just as her mother-in-law commanded her. Why did Ruth submit herself to this plan? Part of it is yes, because she desired the final result. But there's another reason, a bigger reason. I think it's because Ruth trusted Naomi and Ruth trusted the Lord under whose wings she had taken refuge. See, what we need to understand 
is that first response of Ruth, that Ruth received her Redeemer with submission, it's a mark of trust. Submission is a mark of trust. Submit. We don't submit because we understand. We don't submit because we agree. We don't submit because we like it. We submit because we trust the one who is telling us what to do. question for us is, do we trust the one who is over us enough to submit our plans to them? Ruth is pursuing the path of receiving her Redeemer because she trusts him enough to submit. Do we? Do we trust God enough to submit our plans to him? Do we trust him enough to submit our comfort? Do we trust him enough to submit our safe places in order to pursue something better he is providing? Ruth receives the Redeemer the Lord has provided with submission. Let's continue and see how Ruth's proposal happens. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Uh, it's not clear why Boaz is remaining at the threshing floor. Some people think it's to, uh, that he's there in order to protect his harvest, that he's going to sleep there until they can actually store it. Um, that might be the case. I don't think it is for a couple of reasons. Um, one reason is how does Ruth find Boaz sleeping and she's able to get right up to his feet? If Boaz is there trying to protect his grain, he's not doing a very good job if someone can sneak up right to him. Um, beyond that, Ruth is, it says that he's drinking and eating and his heart is merry. I think what we're seeing here is a celebration. It's the end of the harvest. Remember what Boaz has come through. The difficulty of the book of Ruth is not just Naomi and Ruth's. Boaz has been in Bethlehem through a famine. It's likely it's been 10 years since they've experienced this kind of harvest because Naomi was in Moab for 10 years before she heard that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. But now they're back at that threshing floor that has seen too little use for too many years and God has provided abundantly. I think what we see here is Boaz is celebrating. And Naomi says, wait until they have finished their celebration. Wait until they are merry and happy and rejoicing in what the Lord has given them. There is a cause for Boaz to celebrate because the Lord has visited his people and given them food, but God isn't done giving out blessings. It says that she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. You have to appreciate both the tension and humor of this section. The tension is you imagining Ruth walking, trying to make no sound, trying to not be discovered. I like hunting. Sometimes I'll go out several hours before the sun is up in order to get where I'm supposed to be while it is pitch black. I know no one's out there. It's still hard for me to keep my heart going at a regular rate. Where I'm walking, trying not to be discovered, hearing any of these sounds. Imagine what it's like for Ruth 
We know that Boaz is not alone because of what he's going to say later in the passage, but she's going as a woman where all, with all these men trying not to be discovered. There's a tension here. But she gets to her place. She lies down. She uncovers his feet and waits. At midnight, the man was startled, turned over, and behold, a woman! There's a humorous element of this. Like, he's startled. What's going on here? And he asks the appropriate question. Who are you? I'd love to know what was going through Boaz's mind in those split seconds before Ruth spoke. He just woke up and, and, and apparently there, there's a, he doesn't know what's going on. And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Ruth puts everything on the table. It's all or nothing. She asks that he spread his wings over her. It's almost too perfect. Who said those words to her first? Boaz. The first time that they met, the first time that he laid eyes on her and he said, who is this young woman? And then they have that first conversation. And he, what does he say, tell her? The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And now here, here's Ruth asking Boaz, would you be my refuge the way the Lord is my refuge? May I hide beneath your wings in the way that I am hiding under the wings of the Lord. May you be my protector, imitating the way the Lord has protected me. This beautiful picture here of what Ruth is requesting. There's a play on words here. Uh, if, depending on what translation you're using, or maybe you'll have a footnote that it might say, uh, would you spread the corner of your garment over me? Or it might say that in the footnote of your Bible. The reason it says that is because it can be translated both ways, both here and in the previous passage when it talked about the, the wings that, of safety of the Lord. So that also connects to Ezekiel 16. Ezekiel 16, when the Lord comes and offers as the groom to spread the corner of his cloak over the bride. Naomi's asking him, will you redeem me through marriage? Here's what I want us to notice about Ruth's request. Notice her humility. Two times she refers to herself in what way? in this passage, your servant. I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. She comes and asks that he provide what she cannot attain on her own, and she comes in humility. There are few things that God finds more beautiful than a humble heart. God gives grace to the humble. And we see here that Ruth is receiving the Redeemer the Lord has provided 
with humility. I am your servant. I need something that only you can provide for me. Well, God's not the only one that finds this humility beautiful because look at what Boaz says. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. For you have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do you all that you ask. For my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Can you imagine the relief Ruth felt when he says, do not fear. Ruth put everything on the line. There can be no sweeter words from the one who could destroy us, who could expose us before those who could do harm to us, from one who we have humbly and submissively presented ourselves. There can be no sweeter words than do not fear. You have come to me seeking protection. You have placed yourself in a position of vulnerability. You have left everything behind. And I am telling you, do not fear. And the words get sweeter because then he says, I will do for you all that you ask. Ruth is going to be redeemed. The bitter hardships she endured are transforming into sweeter harvests. For the worthy man has found a worthy woman. Do you see here the way in which he was described in chapter 2? And Boaz, there was a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech. And now he says, all of my townspeople know that you are a worthy woman. There's a further beauty and connection here because there's only one other time that that phrase is used. In Proverbs 31, where the precious jewel that is a woman who follows after God's heart, it describes her in Proverbs 31 verse 10. She is a worthy woman. Boaz has found the Proverbs 31 woman. You, all my townspeople know, you are worthy but I want us to notice something about Boaz. What is Boaz's first response to Ruth's request? Does Boaz weigh the pros and the cons? Is he overwhelmed by the cost? Again, let's jump into the story. What kind of baggage are we looking at here? First, Ruth is a Moabite. This isn't the most eligible bachelorette. She's not coming and saying, oh, yeah, well, obviously, oh, man, I'm... No, Ruth brings baggage. She's a foreigner. Her last husband died, likely out of punishment for not following God's commands. What's going to happen to Boaz if he marries a Moabite? On top of that, Ruth has been married with no children. She might be barren. For that time, that's a big deal. Adding to the baggage, Ruth is poor. She came to his fields begging for scraps. Ruth also brings Naomi. 
Ruth promised that she would care for Naomi. She made a vow before the Lord. May the Lord do even more to me, if anything but death separate us. There is a lot of people, in fact, there's someone later in our story that when offered the opportunity to redeem Ruth, immediately they are going to be overwhelmed by the cost. Oh, no, I am not doing that. We're going to see that in chapter four. Is that Boaz's response? No, he is not overwhelmed by the cost. He is overjoyed at the opportunity. He looks at this and says, you have blessed me. This is a beautiful point where we come to our story where everything looks like it's finally going right. And then, of course, we have a new tension. Verse 12, And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. You have got to be kidding me. Boaz isn't the only redeemer. There's someone else who takes precedent. If this was a movie, like this is the part where we finally think, man, all of the problems, all the bad guys have been taken care of. And then we find out, actually, no, there was one more that you didn't even know about. And you're like, oh, you gotta be kidding me. Really? There's also even a part of me where I'm like, come on, Naomi. You couldn't have warned us about that. Maybe she told Ruth. Maybe she didn't. But for us reading the story, we're like, What? A new tension. We want Boaz to be redeemer. We know his character. And it's according to his character that he acts now. Look what he says. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. What we see here is that Boaz is the redeemer the Lord provided who is concerned for the needy more than his own well-being. What does Boaz want? He wants to marry Ruth. He sees this as a blessing. Blessed are you because you have come to me and not pursued other younger men, whether they are rich or poor. He wants this. But what he wants to do more is God's will. He wants to follow what God is doing and he wants to make sure that Ruth is provided for. So what he guarantees is he says, whether it is me or not. I am putting aside the things that I, my well-being, and I am going to pursue what is right for you. That care continues in, in verse 14. It says, so she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Boaz here is caring for Ruth's reputation. He's looking for the needy. This demonstrates to us that there were other people here. And, and I'm just going to say this very quickly. As an aside, many people read an immoral act that what, in what happened here. And I'm just going to tell you, it's not there. There are so many elements in this passage that demonstrate that both Boaz and Ruth dealt with honor and were worthy before God in this moment. And so if you think that there is something immoral, something that's going on between the lines, talk to me after. I am willing to work through with you on the passage, but that's not the point right now. But just know both of them have been people of integrity. And Boaz is concerned about his reputation. 
But he's not just concerned about his reputation. He also wants to provide for her physical needs. He sends her back with an abundance of food. So we come to the final section where Ruth returns home. It says, then she went into the city and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, uh, to me for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed for, to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest until but rest, but we'll settle the matter today. I'm guessing that when Ruth returned, I'm just wondering how she found Naomi. I'm guessing Naomi did not get any sleep that night. We know that Naomi cares about Ruth. There is a love between them that only going through the hardships that they have gone through, only seeing the way that Ruth has provided, Naomi loves Ruth and yet she sent her out to go on this difficult road. Can you imagine what Naomi was doing at home? Sitting, waiting by the door, imagining what is happening to the one she loves and she's just waiting there. And here comes Ruth carrying again all the things that Boaz has given her. She says, how did it go? What happened? So Ruth tells her everything. And we come to the final two attributes of our story that are both for Ruth and Boaz. The final step of the process for Ruth is for her to receive the Redeemer the Lord has provided with patience. Of all the things that Ruth had to do that night, if you had to pick out and say, well, which ones are going to be the easiest ones, we would say this last one. Well, you're back at home, you're with your mother-in-law, you just have to wait. That on paper seems the easiest. But let's just be honest, in reality, isn't waiting one of the hardest things that we need to do? God sometimes says, this is the difficult road you need to take. I'm willing to do that. I'm willing to strive to follow after you. I'm willing to work hard. I'm willing to humble myself before you. But then God says, and now I want you to wait until I provide the results. (sighs) That's hard. How many people have we seen do hard things difficult roads, and they did it faithfully until God says, and now wait. And that's the moment where they abandon the path. But what we see here is Ruth is willing to wait. But we also then see the character of Boaz because this is what it says. He will not rest. Boaz was the redeemer the Lord had provided who was unwilling to rest until redemption was attained. There's an ironic shift here in the story. Up till now, who has been unable to find rest? Who has been seeking rest? Ruth and Naomi. But now, because they have come and sought redemption from a redeemer, now who doesn't have rest? Boaz. He's willing to take their restlessness upon himself in order that he can then provide rest to them. He will not rest until he can provide rest to us. They are able to wait patiently because he is restlessly working. 
So how does this all connect to us? I'm sure that as we've been going through this passage, many of you have seen the connection, the illusions that this is pointing to a greater story. There is a story of redemption found here within these four chapters in Ruth's story, but there is a bigger story. The story of redemption, this is the truth in the humanity story, is that every single one of us needs a redeemer. All of us need someone who can rescue us from the bitter lands we inhabit. We have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The debt of our sins is death, and there is no more bitter hardship. Without a redeemer, we are separated from our good and gracious God, condemned to an eternity apart from him. But God, who is rich in mercy, provided a redeemer. So what kind of redeemer has the Lord provided? He's provided a redeemer who is worthy Revelation 5, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look at it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. What kind of redeemer has the Lord provided? a redeemer who is worthy. What kind of redeemer has the Lord provided? A redeemer who is not overwhelmed by the cost, but overjoyed at the opportunity. Hebrews 12, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of God. Isaiah 53, 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear his iniquities. How did God look at us when we came to him and said, redeem us? He looked with joy. Part of us can understand to some degree why Boaz would look at joy to Ruth. Ruth was a worthy woman. We were not. We came and we had nothing to offer. And yet Christ was not overwhelmed by the cost. He was overjoyed by the opportunity. What kind of redeemer has the Lord provided? A redeemer who is concerned for the needy more than his own well-being. Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Christ is the redeemer the Lord has provided. How will we receive him? We must receive the Redeemer the Lord has provided with submission. 
God has told us the path of redemption. Repent and place your faith in Jesus. If we refuse to submit to God's plan, we will never see the final reward. We will never be redeemed. But if we submit by placing our faith in Christ Jesus for our salvation, then he redeems us. And this is what is so beautiful because instead of having to prepare ourselves when we submit to him, to him, he prepares us. He makes us the bride we are meant to be. What did Naomi have to do? Wash, anoint herself, clothe herself, be prepared, go to his feet. Look at what Christ does for us. We don't wash ourselves. He washes us with his blood. We cannot anoint ourselves. Instead, he anoints us so that we are a pleasing aroma of Christ set apart for his service. We do not put on clothes of righteousness. Instead, he removes our clothes of mourning and death and clothes us in clothes of righteousness. We do not go to him and uncover his feet. Rather, he demonstrates his love for us in that he uncovered our feet and washed them as a servant. Submit to receive the Redeemer the Lord has provided. We must also receive the Redeemer the Lord has provided with humility. We must recognize we cannot save ourselves. We were dead. We have nothing we can do to make ourselves right with God. It is all a work he must do. And so we come to him humbly. We come to him as the ones who are lost and broken. We come to him and place ourselves at his feet and say, spread your wings over your servant for you are my Redeemer. We must humbly receive the, Lord, the Redeemer the Lord has provided. We must also receive the Redeemer the Lord has provided with patience. I know it's hard to wait, but the end is coming. Our final redemption is on the horizon, but we must wait he who began a good work in us will see it to completion. He's coming back. How do I know that? Because of the last attribute we saw of, a, of the Redeemer the Lord provides. The Redeemer the Lord provides is a Redeemer who is unwilling to rest until redemption is finally and fully attained. Do you see the comfort? We have a desire to be redeemed, but this is the road that is given. We need to do this in submission. We need to do this humbly. We do this with patience because the Redeemer, the Lord has provided, is what we truly need. I'm going to ask you right now to bow your heads. And I'm, I'm not going to ask anyone to raise your hand. No one's going to be asked to come up front, but, but I want to give us an opportunity to respond, to reflect on the truth that we've heard. Here's the first response that I want you to consider for your own life, sitting now, taking stock of where you are. I want you to think about the greater story of redemption. Have you received the greatest redeemer the Lord has provided for your greatest need? This is more than just desiring redemption. If you're here and saying, no, I want to be saved, that's not enough. 
Have you received Christ in submission by following the path God has ordained through repentance and placing your faith in Christ alone for your salvation? Have you humbly received him by coming to him and saying, spread your wings over your servant for you are my redeemer. If you are here this morning and have not received the Redeemer, the Lord has provided, your problem isn't that you don't desire redemption. Your problem is your unwillingness to follow the promises God has ordained. Don't stay there. What's stopping you from right now receiving your Redeemer? If you don't know how to do that, talk to me out of the service. But you need to do this because you need a Redeemer. Don't leave this morning without receiving the Redeemer the Lord has provided. I also want to challenge those of us who have already done that. I also want us to think about the greater story of redemption. Many of us have done that, but we are growing weary of waiting. Don't give up. Patiently wait. I know this life is hard. I know you long for the final result and reward. Persevere. Keep following the mission as you patiently wait. The Lord has provided a redeemer who will not rest until we are finally and fully redeemed. Trust him and patiently wait. My last response, though, that I want you to consider, though, is is going back to the personal story of redemption. I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking about that many of you are going through times of immense trials and tribulations. And what you are looking for is to be redeemed out of that circumstance. And here's what I want you to just challenge you. First of all, know it's okay to desire the good things that God gives. If you were in Ruth's position, Ruth was not wrong to desire to find refuge in the, in, under the, in the arms of a husband. Yes, she had refuge under the wings of the, her Lord, but it's not wrong to also desire the good things that God has provided us in this world. And so if you are in a time of trial and tribulation, it's okay to desire redemption from that. But how are you seeking it? Are you willing to submit to your Lord? Are you willing to go to him and say, God, whatever you do, whatever it is, I will follow you. Are you coming to him humbly and saying, God, I don't deserve anything. I'm just asking you as a child. I'm coming and asking you to spread your wings over me. And then finally, are you willing to wait? I know that's hard. I know many of you have taken difficult roads right now and you're just waiting for God to finally give that redemption. Wait. Know that you have a redeemer who does not rest until it is finally complete. I don't know if you're going to see the redemption like Ruth. I'm not sure if your story has the same type of ending, but I do know the ultimate ending. He's coming back. And every tear will be wiped away. Every wrong will be made right. So how are you going to respond this morning? How will you receive the Redeemer the Lord has provided? I'm going to just give you a a few seconds, moments, just to reflect for your own life what God would be calling you to do at this time.